Well, good morning again, church. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you uh, the, and, and give you kind of a heads up on what we're doing and where we're going. Um, this is, uh, as we approach the Christmas season, the church, I, I know you approach, my goodness, have you been to the stores? But as you approach the Christmas season, there's a season of four weeks prior to Christmas that the church calls Advent. And the word Advent simply means coming. And uh, it is a season of preparation uh, to not only celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ and his birth, uh, but it's also a season to look toward and begin teaching about the second coming. And I'll have to tell you that it's not really a popular subject as you're headed into Christmas. So many churches this year have uh, kind of shifted just a little bit. Uh, and we're focusing on some themes of Christ's second advent, his return, his coming again uh, in November, because no one cares what we preach on in November. But December, we're pretty clear we want Christmas stuff. And last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 2, which is the prophecies of Christ's return. And this morning, we're going to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue in this focus. So if you have your Bibles with you or your smartphones or your tablet, would you go to Matthew chapter 24? I'm going to begin reading in verse 36. Now, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 24, but uh, as we begin our time of reflection, seeking the Spirit's teaching, we're going to be just looking at uh, verse 36 for our reading this morning. Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. <clears throat> For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Will you pray with me? Lord, we've read your written word, your holy, your perfect word. And now, O oh God, we pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our heart, will be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord our God. In Jesus' name, amen. So the old song is, well, I don't know how old it is, sign, sign, everywhere a sign. See, I can tell those of you who remember from 1971, that one hit wonder of the five-man electrical band, we are quickly becoming a culture of targeted ads. Today, your smartphone, Google, your social media, they all pay attention at what you look at. You don't believe me? Go home today, search on Google for a toaster, and see how many ads for toasters you get on your social media from here on out. But even though we have that level of targeted ad, signs are still an important part of our culture today. For example, 
I don't know about you, but I get nervous when I'm on my way to the airport and all the signs on the side of the road are advertising funeral homes. <laughs> or if you go to the hospital and outside of the hospital are these billboards advertising lawyers. I get kind of nervous about that sort of thing. But I like to pay attention to signs. Signs are fun for me, and I have brought together a little collection of signs for us to think about today. It takes a few moments. And then there's those signs that are given to us by municipalities and counties and states. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do here. And we live in a litigious culture nowadays. I mean, we have to put warning labels on everything. Uh, not too long ago, I saw a warning label on a stroller that said, please remove baby before folding. <laughs> I particularly like the sign that's on my sunshield for my, for my vehicle. Uh, if you put the sunshield up, there's a warning label that says, please remove before driving. This is one of those other good signs. Some sushi products may contain raw fish. You don't say. Now, having moved here from Kentucky, I can tell you that in Kentucky, they call that bait. <laughs> then there's those signs where you're really not sure what it's trying to say. <laughs> and then I really love signs that are very clear about expectations. Do not entrance. This is for entrance only. Now, I need to pick on a sister congregation of ours. I happen to know this congregation. I almost blacked out the name of the church, but... Hey, I'm sure that he would make fun of me if he had the opportunity. But at Louisville Christian Church, we love hurting people. There was a wave of folks who got that. Well, it's not a secret anymore, is it? And back to those municipality signs, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do here. And of course, we've all seen this sign, haven't we? And that's why we're here today. The sign, the end is near. In the Gospel of Matthew that was read to you this morning, Jesus gives five major discourses throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, five big groups of teachings. And this one in Matthew chapter 24 is the fifth and final big discourse, the big block of Jesus' teaching. The section begins with Jesus at the temple. In chapter 23, at the end of chapter 23, he's just warned the religious leaders uh, for their failure to teach the truth to God's people and Jesus' grief over the city of Jerusalem. Now, as we picked up in the first couple of verses in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is now leaving the temple. He's headed east, down through the Kidron Valley, and then up the next mount, which is the Mount of Olives. And as he goes on that journey, he says to his disciples that not one stone will be upon the other when the days are accomplished. He prophesies the destruction of the temple. And this prophecy would come true in the year 70 AD when the Roman general Titus, who would eventually become emperor, who was the son of the current emperor, Vespasian, would utterly destroy Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD. When Jesus and his disciples reached the Mount of Olives, 
which is really kind of a short walk. It's only about a thousand yards away from the temple. The disciples begin to ask Jesus two questions. Well, well, maybe three. Well, when we get into it, we'll see where the confusion is. In verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples of Jesus ask him, after he's told them about these events, when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I don't want to make too fine of a point of this because uh, scholars argue about it. It doesn't need to be argued about. Some say that it's three questions. Others say, no, it's only two because the word sign in the text is singular. So the what's the sign of your coming and the sign of, your, of the end of the age is the same question. Regardless, whether it's two questions with uh, two parts of the second question or three questions, they're things that we need to take note of. Now, if you're taking notes... Uh, I hope that you will go home and, and study this more in depth. Uh, out on uh, a stand next to the Welcome Center are the notes uh, for this message. And in those notes, I have broken down Jesus' answers by verse to each of these two slash three questions. Now, I'm not going to go over them here, but if you want to delve into it more deeply, I hope you'll pick up uh, one of those study guides and if you're not in a small group, I'd encourage you to get into a small group where small groups today, this week, over 29 small groups to consider, will be looking at uh, the specifics of this text. Now, the first question, when will these things be? Now, last week we mentioned how sometimes the Bible will say one thing and it'll have multiple meanings, two meanings at the same time. So, for example, last week we were talking about how David wants to build the temple, King David. He goes to the prophet Nathan, says, I want to do this. Prophet Nathan says, yeah, that's a great idea. Until that night, God says to Nathan, get back and tell King David, I don't want him to building it, but his son will build it. And indeed, we know historically that David's son Solomon indeed built the first temple. But we also discovered that it was the one who carries the title son of David, Jesus Christ himself, who builds the final temple, the temple of his own flesh, the temple which includes you and me as a part of the body of Christ, the church that exists today. So just like that, the same is true here in this text in Matthew 24. Jesus answers their question as to the destruction of the temple that existed in the time of Jesus in 70 AD by the Romans, but he also gives us some signs of his return. When will this be? War and disaster are the birth pains, the first signs. Now, in the year 66 AD, 66 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Romans. To put this into perspective, 2 Timothy was being written at the time the Jews were rebelling, and eight other books of your New Testament had not been written yet. It would take Rome four years to finally subdue all of Palestine and Israel. In 70 AD, angry Roman soldiers would finally breach the walls of Jerusalem and begin to slaughter and massacre every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem. 
And to add insult into, to injury, they would take their dead bodies and put them on the altar that stood outside of the temple. It would be another three years of violence, murder, and mayhem before the Romans finally subdued all of Judea. And even when that happened, the Gospel of John, the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation had not yet been written. During that series of conflicts and battles known as the Roman-Jewish Wars, over 350,000 Jews were killed. A couple of hundred years later, in 614 A.D., when the city of Jerusalem was inhabited mainly by Christians at this point, the Persian Empire would again attack Jerusalem, and they killed 90,000 Christians. 23 years later, the city of Jerusalem would fall under Islamic control in the year 636-637. And beginning in the year 1099, at the launch of the First Crusade, which sought to take Jerusalem back out of Islamic control, over three million people died during the Crusades. Soldiers died during the Crusades. Now that's just in and around the city of Jerusalem. I've just quoted you the death toll just in and around the city of Jerusalem during that five to 600 year period. Throughout the entire known world, 54.6 million people were killed in war during the 17th century. 62.5 million were killed in war in the 19th century. And the 20th century, 194 million people died during war in the 20th century. Historians tell us that there were more people killed in war during the 20th century than all of the other centuries combined. The first sign. The second sign. Suffering, hatred, and false teachers. The second sign. Verses 9 through 28 of chapter 24. Did you know that since the time of Christ, 68 men and women have been successful in forming significant historical movements that believed that they were the Messiah, either as a reincarnation of Jesus Christ or claiming that they were the real Messiah and Jesus was a fake? Now, that doesn't even count all the crackpots you and I know who claim to be the Messiah. That's just folks who were able to form cohesive, significant movements. According to Open Door Ministries, which is a ministry that tracks Christian persecution, between October 31st, 2017, and November 1st, 2018, 245 million Christians worldwide are be were being persecuted for their faith. That's one in nine Christians. And that number of Christian persecution increases each year by 14%. Now, that may, not, that may not seem like a big number to you, but let me put it in real terms. By the time my youngest daughter, who is three, will be my age, the chances of her being a persecuted Christian, if she indeed becomes a Christian, is significantly higher 
almost guaranteed that she could be a persecuted Christian. My daughter. Our grandchildren will probably, according to the statistical trend, almost certainly be persecuted because they're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's sobering, isn't it? During that same year that I mentioned to you earlier, from 2017 to 2018, 4,136 Christians were put to death in that year alone. 2,525 Christians were arrested, tried, and found guilty of being a Christian and are currently in prison today. 1,266 churches worldwide during that year were attacked, burned, or vandalized. North Korea is ranked the number one country and currently holds the distinction of being the worst offender, even worse than Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and China put together. And here's what's really frightening. Every day, 11 Christians are put to death because they believe in Jesus. What does that mean? That today, while you and I are in this place singing and praying and reading the scripture, 11 of our brothers and sisters will die because of their love of Jesus. The second sign. Jesus goes on. Then the sign of the Son of Man. Verse 30. Now here many folks try to explain what exactly this, quote, sign is. Some say it's some sort of meteorological event. You know, the skies ripped open. Others say that it's a a series of cataclysmic events of human and natural disaster. And these all may be true. But everyone agrees that this is a time when Christ will be revealed as the eternal ruler, the one who is the ancient of days, the one whom the whole world will recognize is duly honored to receive worship throughout the world and take his place to rule over all of creation. The sign. That's what we're waiting for, right? The sign. We want to know. We want to see. We want to understand the sign. What is the sign that we need to be paying attention to? Well, Jesus gives us some glimpses into this sign, shrouded in mystery, I'll admit, but he does so by reminding us of the days of Noah, when the floodwaters came. That was the part that was read to to you this morning. That these floodwaters came suddenly without warning, Now, I've read that in the New Testament. I've read that in the Old Testament. And I'm always perplexed by that. Because if you go and you look at uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, and then do look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, and you do some math there, you get that it took Noah somewhere around 100 to 120 years to build the ark. What does that mean? That means that the folks around Noah had at least a century to know something was going on. 
Now, they might have just thought that this dude was a crackpot and had lost his ever-loving mind. But what it does to me is it causes me to consider what are the things occurring right now that are blatantly obvious, but I, like those folks in the time of Noah, have figured out a way to dismiss them, view them as utter nonsense, or completely reject them. Why is it that Jesus hasn't come back yet, if this is true? If my faith is true, why hasn't Jesus... Listen, if Jesus were to come back today, and that would prevent the 11 people who will die today because they're Christians, I'd be in favor of it. Now, you might say to me, yeah, but Pastor Ike, there's only 11 people. Come on, that's not a big deal. 11 people throughout the whole world. Well, what if one of those 11 was your kid? Or what if one of those 11 was your mom and dad? What if one of those 11 was you? So why doesn't Jesus come back? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, all should re- uh, that, but that all should reach repentance. That is, as every moment that Christ does not return gives us, his church, more time to proclaim his lordship to the world, to suffer for his glory, as did the martyrs, as do those 11 people who will die today because of the faith that we share. So what's our job? What can we do as the Lord tarries? That's the phrase the church gives to it, the Lord, if the Lord tarries. What should we be doing? Well, first of all, our job is don't focus on the signs. Now, that's an interesting conclusion in light of where we have gone just the past few moments. But the Bible says that not even the angels know, not even Jesus in his flesh knows, but only the Father knows. Years ago, Shauna and I were leading a pilgrimage of folks uh, on a historical tour tracing the history of the Christian church movement of which this congregation is a part. And that, our movement begins in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So we were on our way to Northern Ireland to a little town called Ahorey, A-H-O-R-E-Y, Ahorey. Nothing more than a wide spot in the middle of the road. But uh, at Ahorey is a Presbyterian church that one of our founders, Thomas Campbell, served before he came to the United States in uh, uh, the early 1800s. Well, we were completely lost. And so we're driving down this road, and we come to this other little teeny tiny small town, and we see a little north, northern Irish guy walking down the street. So we stop the bus, and I get off the bus, and we go to ask this guy. I said, excuse me, sir, could, could you help us find, uh, give us directions to Ohori, Northern Ireland? And this little Irish guy looked at us, all these Americans on this bus, and he says, ah, he said, do you see that road over there? And I said, yes, sir. He said, don't take it, it'll do you no good thought to myself, I've just landed in a movie with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hare called The Quiet Man. But in the light of what he just said, do you see that sign over there? Don't pay attention to it. It'll do you no good. 
So what should I do, pastor? Jesus gives us the answer to that. Stay awake and be ready. In the book, Finishing Our Course with Joy, Guidance from God for Engaging with Our Aging, I love that title, J.I. Packer, who's a noted theologian, author, and pastor. If you haven't read any stuff by J.I. Packer, I encourage you to do so. He's an amazing author and man of faith. He stresses the importance of the practice of something called catechesis. Now, that's a real fancy church word for teaching. And he focuses on it by saying, congregations in every age must see themselves as learning communities in which gospel truth has to be taught, defended, and vindicated against corruptions of it and alternatives to it. Be alert, Packer writes, to all aspects of the difference between true and false teaching. While many Christians are actively involved in devotional Bible study, Packer laments the lack of formal catechetical study, without which, he says, well-intentioned minds and hearts will repeatedly go off track. Did you hear that? Be alert. In another one of his books, Taking God Seriously, Vital Things We Need to Know, Packer says, as the years go by... I am increasingly burdened by the sense that Christians are, if not starving, at least grievously undernourished for lack of a particular pastoral ministry that was a staple item in the church life for the first few Christian centuries, but has largely fallen out of use in recent days. That ministry is called catechesis, teaching. It consists of intentional orderly instruction in the truths that Christians are called to live by, linked with equally intentional and orderly instruction on how they are to do it. Now, you all may not have known J.I. Packer, and you may not know this next guy. His name is E. Christian Kopf. But you do know where he teaches as a professor. He is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. In his book entitled, The Devil Knows Latin, I'd encourage every one of you to get that book and read it, The Devil Knows Latin by Kopf, K-O-P-F-F. He writes this, beginning in the middle of the 19th century, there was a determined effort to turn clergy, pastors, from the intellectual rigor of exegesis and preaching to a caring service profession. This largely successful movement has had many ramifications. One effect has been the weakening of professional knowledge of the sacred tongues, Greek, Hebrew, Latin. I have seen clergy who could not understand the simplest sentences of the Greek text of the New Testament and who explicated an English translation and direct contradiction to the clear meaning of the Greek, but who, I suppose, work hard in other ways for the well-being of their parishioners. Essentially, what Packer and Kopf and Jesus is saying here is this is not playtime. This is not feel-good time. 
the church worldwide and quite a few congregations would do well to be reminded that this is a time to put away petty jealousies. This is a time to stop acting like the whole world revolves around us. Our inability to get along, our constant obsession with being offended, our childish demands for others to play by our rules or we'll just take our toys and go home. You know what time it is? It's time to finish our vegetables and quit pouting about not getting dessert. That's what my three-year-old does, not followers of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, a visitor who joined our brotherhood breakfast remarked to me as he was leaving, you got a critical mass here. That is, is we had a room full of men who were studied up, prayed up, and they're ready to take the field. Thirteen men and five women ready to go to Puerto Rico. Men ready to step into the messiness of the lives of single moms, kids without dads. And yesterday afternoon when my wife came home after having led the women's book club, she said to me, these women know their Bible. They pray daily and they're not ashamed of their faith. That's the culture of this place. That's the culture of the church of Jesus Christ. Ignore the signs. We've got work to do. And what is that work? Continue fulfilling the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. If you've been here for the past couple of months, you've probably thought to yourself, hasn't that verse come up a lot? Hopefully every week. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Merciful God, forgive us when we have focused on what is immediately around us and how it impacts us rather than on your work throughout the entire world. Give us the courage, O God, to stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer unspeakable horrors because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Give us the boldness to speak with confidence, courage, and love, and grace, and mercy into the lives of our families, our friends, and our neighbors. And as the signs of war and false teachers, of natural disasters surround us, May they not distract us from the work to which you have called us to go 
to baptize, to teach, knowing that you are always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.